I, we probably have mixed feelings in the room. I, I love the cold weather. Anyone love the cold weather in the room? I, I love it. How many of you, not, not so much? <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I, I do at least enjoy it when it gets a little cooler here. Georgia summers after a while. It kind of wears on me for around August. I'm like, oh, it's getting rough. So let's pray, and then we will jump in. Our goal today, and this goal we may not accomplish, is to finish Abraham. Our goal is to get to the end of Abraham, and I I just, I think it may feel a little bit like we're moving through a lot really quickly. So we're going to try to pick and choose as we go, but oh man, there's still a lot to cover. We'll we'll do the best we can. Uh, Greg, can you pray for us? Yes, let's pray. Father, what a privilege um, you have given us. To, uh, to gather together, to study your word, uh, to see how it fits together, Lord, as we consider the different covenants in Scripture and how they are so central to understanding what's going on in the story of the Bible. Uh, Lord, as we think about uh, Abraham today, um, again, please help Mark and I be clear, um, and Lord, I pray you'll just give us all insight, understanding, uh, Lord, and all the proper application uh, from uh, this covenant that you made with Abraham so long ago, which is foundational in so, so many ways to, uh, to Christ, to the new covenant, to salvation, and so many other things. Uh, so, Lord, just be with us in a special way. Help us uh, understand you and your purposes better. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and jump to Genesis chapter 17, and I'm going to try to provide some of these texts on the screen because there's just a lot to look at. Graham Goldsworthy, who's a scholar who deals with these kinds of issues, uh, he said, uh, all, of the, all of world history is related to the promises God makes to Abraham. So this should matter, right, to all of us, since so these promises relate to all of human history. And... Wellam and Hunter, in their book, Christ from Beginning to End, they have these six uh, things on the list that you see particularly clearly in Abraham's story. Last week, we looked at unconditional election, where God looked into a lost world and He picked Abraham, who was worshiping idols. Remember, with his father and brother, they were worshiping false gods. God picked him and saved him and promised to give him the offspring. So, you clearly see that was unconditional choice on God's part. We also saw last week number two. Didn't we see a clear example of righteousness by faith? Abraham came outside the tent, he looks up at the stars, and God says, even though you are old, I'm going to give you as many offspring, as offspring as the stars of the heavens, and he believed God, that impossible promise it seemed, he believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then we will kind of make note as we go, but three through six, salvation through substitution, the offering of Isaac, right? And the Lord stops Abraham's knife and provides the ram instead, salvation through substitution. Circumcision for a new heart, we'll address briefly toward the end today, but the the covenant of circumcision comes in here with Abraham. And Abraham's offspring and God's global purpose, number five, God's purpose through his offspring is to restore blessing to all the families of the earth. Remember, it was at Babel that we had the families of the earth originate. The nations come from Babel when God divides the languages. Well, God div- divided them in a sense with judgment, but is he, does he have a plan to reunite them in blessing in Abraham? Yes, and that's going to ultimately happen through Christ. And number six, there's anticipation of our heavenly city. And again, if we have time, we, we'll touch on that uh, in Abraham's story. So the chapters to keep in mind with Abraham that are oh so important, 12, 15, 17, 22. So if you want to just keep them in your mind, if you want to understand Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham, those four chapters are essential. 12, 15, 17, 22, 
And in between those chapters, you have examples of Abraham blessing the nations or people receiving judgment for going against Abraham, right? So you see that, that play of those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you will be cursed. You'll see that in, in the in-between chapters. But 12, 15, 17, 22, in fact, um, Peter Gentry wrote it like this. Initially, God made promises to Abraham, Genesis 12, that were later enshrined in a covenant, Genesis 15, remember passing through the animal pieces, and chapter 17 today, circumcision, and were finally confirmed by an oath. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but Gentry said, for an analogy, imagine Genesis 12 is like an engagement, a promise is made. Then imagine Genesis 15 and 17. Imagine 15 is like walking down the aisle. There's literally an aisle, right, between the pieces. There's a covenant being made. Chapter 17, uh, there's a sign that goes with the covenant. And then chapter 22 is God reconfirming that uh, covenant with an oath. He says you can almost think of it as a wedding anniversary where God is coming along and saying, I, I still mean this. I'm still behind this promise. I confirm that promise to Abraham. So, again, the drama of Genesis that we mentioned last Sunday Graham Goldsworthy writes it like this, the promise is repeatedly made against, so God's promise is repeatedly made against a background of events that seem to threaten the promise and make its fulfillment impossible. By this means, Abraham learns that he must live by faith in the promises of God, even when it seems that the promises have been destroyed by circumstances. Now, just think about how relevant that is to our lives today. Mm-hmm. Isn't this the entire battle of the Christian life? I'm going to talk about this in the sermon some, Lord willing, next hour, but isn't this the whole battle of the Christian life? God has made promises, and we are tempted to what? Disbelieve the promises, right? What is anxiety, ultimately? It's, I don't trust God to handle the future the way He said. I mean, I know it could be more complicated, but that could be, in essence, what it can be. What is ungodly fear? It could be, I don't trust God for my future. What is the sin of, just name a sin. Does it somehow link back to not trusting God's goodness and His promises? Yes. So the, the struggle Abraham has is not something that happened back then and is irrelevant now. Even when God's promises seem far-fetched or difficult to believe, the battle of the Christian life is what? To trust God even in the dark, even when things are confusing, even when things are difficult, when life is not in all, at all going the way we planned, when things are going the opposite of what we wished, when pain and suffering come into our lives, what do we do? We've got to learn to trust in our faithful God despite uh, all the circumstances we see. So, Greg, some thoughts about what's going on here. Well, I'm going to channel uh, Jerry Edgar here. Uh, you know, we, we haven't mentioned Romans 8, but it's probably fitting that we mentioned Romans 8 uh, at this point. I mean, you think about all the promises just in that chapter that God makes. Um, you know, He is for us, not against us. Christ Jesus is in heaven interceding for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Nothing can separate us from God's love that's in Christ. I mean, those are things if we latch on to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we, if we just cling to that, like we, we are enabling ourselves and strengthening ourselves to, to overcome the anxiety, to overcome the fear. Um, but that is where the battle is. Am I going to believe that God is actually going to do what he says he's going to do, that he's going to be for me what he promises to be? Um, I mean, do I believe that or do I not believe that? And trials come and they test the strength of that at times. And sometimes we might find, man, I'm, you know, I was stronger than I thought. And other times we might find I'm not quite as strong as I thought I was. But God uses these trials to strengthen our faith to show us that he can be trusted. And, you know, it, it's one of those things. The longer you walk with him, the more trials you go through. The more trials you go through, the more faithful you see him to be. Um, and over time that, and I, I think we see that with Abraham Absolutely. as well. Like he grew strong, I think Hebrew says, 
uh, or Romans says. Mm-hmm. Um, and over time, as we walk with God, you know, what we're saying here with this quote from Goldsworthy, um, learning to live by faith in the promises of God, we, we, we understand that at a deeper and deeper level every day we walk with Christ. Every day we, 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 we understand that more, and especially the trials. Like we, you learn to lean on God, to trust God, um, and not doubt the more you see him get you through things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get through. Absolutely. Next part from Goldsworthy. For 25 years after God first made these promises, Abraham remains childless. Okay, we've got to, again, make these people real people. Abraham was a real person. Sarah, Sarai was a real woman. Can you imagine starting with the promises? They were already older at the time when the promises first came. 25 years go by and there has been nothing to show by way of answer to the promises. Where is the child? Where is this promised one? Can you imagine the agonizing wait? But what does God say? Well, it says here, at, a critical, at critical times during that period, God reminds Abraham of his promises to sustain him in the face of seemingly impossible odds against their coming true. So again, Abraham is a wonderful model not perfect, but he clearly exemplifies genuine faith in God, and it gets stronger as it goes. Thoughts on that? Well, I, I think this is helpful, and I, I think we've mentioned this before. You know, we we tend to read Scripture like at the speed of social media. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, we simply do, um, and we we think we read this part to this part, and it happened like literally. You know, this happened, and then the next day, this happened. The next day, this happened. I mean, Scripture covers a lot of ground sometimes in just a very short amount of space. And it allows for long periods of time that unless we slow down and are, are very intentional to, to notice it, like we, we don't, under, we don't ca- grasp, I think like we should, like what the reality is like of Abraham 25 years. And that's when we stop and we say, what, what have I done in 20, the last 25 years? Think about your life, all that has taken place um, and, and everything. Like I haven't even been married 25 years. You know, I go back 25 years, I'm still, I'm still in college. You know, it's like, so think, think about the last 25 years of your life, everything that's happened in that period of time, um, hopes, dreams, successes, struggles, failures, victories, all that. I mean, that's a long time. It's a long, just a quarter of a century. Um, and so we, we need to, when we see that, you know, the time frame, like, because chapter 17, he was 99, um, he's 75 when it started. And it's like, that's a long period. I mean, put yourself in that shoes and think, what would I do for 25 years? And it just, it helps us appreciate the fact that Abraham had to wait. And what do we often have to do? We have to wait. Um, And guess what? God did not fail at the end of the 25 years. He didn't forget. He didn't slow down. It was exactly when God wanted yeah, and God, Jerry will often, Jerry Edgar will often say, God cares about the process as much as he cares about anything. Yes. And the, the 20, do you think the 25 years shapes the character of Abraham? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If God had given the son the next day, he would not have been tested or grown in all the areas in which he did. So there is something to be said for God's work in the quiet times, in the, in the moments where nothing seems to be happening. God is at work in mm-hmm. those times. So now we got to get a little bit into argumentation mode. Okay, so this next part, stick with us here. We're going to go through a couple of arguments that take some time to unravel. But one question is, are there two covenants or one covenant with, with Abraham? And I quoted Salehammer. I love Salehammer, but I disagree with him on this point. Uh, so here's what John Salehammer says. Why does God establish a covenant with Abraham a second time? 
Why, why two different times? The simplest answer lies in seeing the two covenants as distinct covenants, a covenant made in regard to the promise of the land in chapter 15 with the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, and a covenant made in regard to the promise of a great abundance of descendants in chapter 17. So you see he's arguing there's a covenant of the land in 15, a covenant of descendants in 17. So I thought green would be a good color for the land. Doesn't that seem just fitting? And I thought descendants will use blue. So just stick with me here to kind of color, just kind of see this by color. Let's see if that, I, I don't, again, I'm not making fun of Salehammer. I love the man, but I don't agree with him on this. I think it's one covenant. And let me just kind of do a quick, just, you may have to look at the screen rather than your Bible just because it's going to go so quickly here. But let's just look at the beginning. Chapter 12. Do you see land and offspring connected together in the initial promise? Go to the land I will show you. I'll give you a great nation. To your offspring, I'll give this land. Do you see offspring and land in the initial promise? Yeah. And then you go to chapter 15. Look toward the heavens, number the stars. If you're able to number them, number them so shall your offspring be. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out to give you the land to possess. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. Do you see land and offspring in chapter 15? Together, right? Then chapter 17. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. That would be offspring. Verse 8, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. To me, it doesn't look like we have two separate covenants, does it? It looks like we're dealing with the same things in all these examples. Is it land and offspring, land and offspring, land and offspring? So I don't think we've got two covenants with Abraham. I think we have one covenant, but it's going to be further explained and expounded the further you go. Does that make sense? So the further you go, the more information we're getting, but I don't think we're dealing with different things fundamentally. Um, one other point here, and Greg, Greg pointed this out to me, some of these things, uh, the idea of cutting a covenant versus establishing a covenant. We talked about that with Adam, but look here, Adam and Noah. We're told that God cuts a covenant with Abraham in chapter 15. Remember, we argue that Hebrew word normally means to start a new covenant. That's the idea. They're starting afresh. But he is said to establish, a different word, a covenant with Abraham in chapter 17. Remember, we argued establish means picking up a covenant that already exists. So if you're getting lost there, the idea of cutting a covenant is establishing, uh, excuse me, cutting is beginning, yes. establishing is continuing. And again, I think the grammar there points to one covenant in both yeah. chapters. Greg, thoughts on this? Um, well, I mean, you go back to the original promise in Genesis 12. I think for me, that, yeah. that's, that's, um, that answers this probably more, clear than any, clear, more clearly than anything in that in that promise in Genesis 12 that we know so well, you know, I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great. You'll be a blessing. Um, and uh, all in the context of going to the land uh, that God is showing. And so in the initial promise, it's, it's both, it's both um, offspring and and land. It's, it's not one against the other. The two are always connected. And I think that's one of the things that's been so helpful in this study for me is you see these covenants come as a, as a total package. Like we'll see that with the old covenant, that God, the, the covenant God makes with Israel through Moses. Um, yes, you can divide up certain parts of like the law, you know, to help understand it, but it comes as a total package. We don't you, you can't divide up one part and take it away from the rest of it and, and make separations where the Bible doesn't. And so when God makes a covenant, it comes as a packaged whole, if you will. And so when God starts making these promises to Abram uh, in chapter 12, it's part of a whole package. And the package might not be given all at once, mm -hmm. but we're, we're, we don't have the freedom to, to break it up because it comes at different spots. Or you might think, well, this is offspring, this is land. You, we can't do that. The covenants always come as a packaged whole, and we need to keep that in mind. I think it'll help us make sense of uh, here in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, and also later God's covenant with Israel 
Um, simply because you get into issues like um, Sabbath and stuff like that, you know, it, it's all God's covenant with Israel is a comprehensive whole. You can't like take this aspect and say, oh, we, we can separate this out and this aspect. is di-. It all comes together and that affects how we read it. No, and I, that'll I, make sense the more we go through it. I, I agree. Okay, so uh, real quick again, just reminding you the connection between Adam, Noah, and Abraham. You can see here on the screen the connection in words. To Adam and Eve, Genesis 1.28, God blessed Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That sounds very similar. Noah is a new Adam figure. Then Genesis 12 and 17 together, I will bless you, Abram, multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Now, do you see what we lost in Adam is coming through Noah's line, and now it's coming through Abraham's line. The, 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 uh, what, where Adam failed, Noah's... Uh, where Adam failed, Abraham's family is promised to bring about what we need. And Peter Gentry writes this, Abraham and his family, called Israel, are another Adam who will be God's true humanity. The seed of Abraham, which is Israel, is in fact the last Adam. So Israel, and Jesus, remember, comes from Israel, is the last Adam because there will be no major starts for the human race from this point forward. And uh, let's also look here real quick. In Genesis 17, we're promised that God's going to make a covenant with Abraham. He'll be the father of a multitude of nations. And just look at this here, verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. This is the first mention of kings coming from Abraham's line. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything, really? Well, we'll say more about this in future weeks. But when you zip to the end of Genesis, chapter 49, right here, Jacob gathers all the 12 sons around him, and he's blessing them. You know, he goes through Reuben and the others. And he says to Judah, verse 8, we know this passage, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your brother's sons shall bow down to you. He says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. He's gone up. He stooped down. He crouched like a lion. So you've got the lion of Judah. And then here's the, here's the, the verse, verse 10. The scepter... The scepter is what a king has, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations, the peoples. So are we seeing here a little snapshot, a little picture that the kings that are coming from Abraham include the kings from Judah's line, and we're told that the kingship from Judah is never going to depart. It's going to stay forever. And are we getting a sense already that perhaps the Abrahamic promise of restoration and blessing is going to come where? It's going to come through a king, a lion from the tribe of Judah. That sounds like Revelation because Revelation is picking up on this text. Mm-hmm. But you, I mean, it's amazing how much is in the first book of the Bible. Yes. You're already getting a sense here that an, an Adam-like figure who's going to crush the serpent's head and restore blessing to the nations is going to come through a king from Abraham's family who's a descendant of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're already getting that sense in the first book of the Bible. Well, and also, too, keep, keep it there on um, Genesis Uh, what Jacob's saying about Judah. Look at that last section there in verse 10. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so even at this early point, we see the king that's going to come from the line of Judah is going to be bigger than just the king of Israel. Mm -hmm. The peoples refers to the nations, plural, meaning at some point from Judah is going to be a guy who's going to rule over the whole world. And I think that, you know, you, you start to, to notice that God's, you know, Adam, God's promise to Adam and Eve that someone's going to crush, like that's a global purpose. God's promise to Abram, you know, and you all, the families of the earth will be blessed is a global purpose here. Um, Genesis, um, I'm not sure the, the chapter, but uh, 49, 10, the obedience of the peoples. And then here's the key. 
David knew God's law pretty well. David meditated on God's word day and night. Uh, when God makes his promise, and we'll see this down the road, when he makes his promise to David and he makes his covenant with David that uh, you know one of his sons will build the temple and one of his sons will be on the throne forever, when David goes in to pray and thank God in response to God's making this promise to him, he says, this is instruction for mankind. David understands that his kingship is meant to extend to the whole world. Just let me just keep going yeah. with that. You can turn there if you want, but Psalm 72, just real quick, Psalm 72 of Solomon, uh, it says this, verse 8, it's referring to the Davidic king, right? May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, Psalm 72, verse 9, may desert tribes bow down before him, like we see here in this text in Genesis, may, uh, and his enemies lick the dust. Does that sound like the serpent licking the dust? Uh, verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts, and may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And this is not even in the New Testament yet, and it's so clearly Christ-focused here. This is the yeah. son of David, the Lion of Judah, who is going to come. All the nations will bow down to him, and he is going to have dominion over the whole earth. I and mean, that's already there in the Old Testament before we get anywhere. And so this is all coming from Abraham's offspring. That's, that's the crucial point for the Abrahamic blessing. Okay, now we got another technical thing to deal with. Are you ready for technicality number two? So we think there's only one covenant with Abraham, okay? I think there's one covenant with Abraham, not two. But now we've got another technical thing here. And this is a big debate, but we'll just put it here on the screen. Important question to ask. Is the covenant God makes with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, is it a conditional or unconditional covenant? And you say, well, what, what difference does that make? Well, it, it does make a difference because the different systems will take this in different ways. So let's start with this. Last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at Genesis 15. We'll just review this verse, 15, 17. Remember, the animal pieces are cut. Abraham is asleep. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, representing God, passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. Do you see here an unconditional aspect to the promise with Abraham? Yes, because what was Abraham doing when the promise was made? He was sleeping. If you are sleeping and God is the only one walking through the animal pieces, is God saying, like Greg said last Sunday, no matter what happens, I will see to it that this covenant is fulfilled? Is that what God's saying? I think absolutely that's what God's saying. So I think you have a strong, unconditional aspect here in Genesis chapter 15. God will see to it that the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled, and has he, has he done what he said? Absolutely. He sent Jesus, and we now have the one who will reign. Can I make a, a quick yeah. comment on the conditional, unconditional? Let's just make sure we understand those terms. Like, I, I think we probably do, but when we say unconditional, that means without conditions. Like, God, the, the, this, this covenant being uh, um, uh, successful, being completed, being fulfilled, is not going to be based on anything, we, any conditions that we meet. God's saying everything that's going to take, that needs to happen for this to be accomplished, I'm going to do. It's not... It's unconditional on us. Like we, we don't have any conditions that we have to meet for God to keep that promise. Okay, that's what we mean. If it were con the conditional aspect means the, the accomplishment is conditioned upon us doing something. Okay, and so that's the unconditional conditional aspect. When we say chapter 15 is unconditional, God takes all the conditions on himself. Mm -hmm. Okay, the, the accomplishment of this covenant, the fulfillment of it, God says is on me. There's no conditions for you. 
And so that leads into the, why this yes. is technical. No, yeah, it's about to get a little more complicated. Let me quote Schreiner here on the screen. Uh, we see here in Genesis 15 the unconditional character of the covenant with Abraham. This was not a mutual pact in which God and Abraham played equal roles. God would certainly fulfill the covenant. He staked his own existence upon the promise. Remember, if I fail to keep this, I will be cut in half like the animals. That's what God himself said by walking between the pieces. But now it gets complicated because Genesis 17 sounds like the covenant is conditional. Okay, so here we go. This gets a little bit confusing here. We won't read all of this for the sake of time, but uh, let's just look at this here. Verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, do you see a conditional aspect here? You've got to do this or you're going to be cut off from the covenant. Do you see that there's a condition that has to be met amongst the, the male children in the family or else they are cut off from the covenant? See a condition, right? But let's, let me just kind of string through some verses here. I want to show you several times we see that Abraham's obedience seems crucial to the covenant coming true. And you say, how could that be? So look at Genesis 18, verse 19. God says, I, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Now, do you see here? Uh, Abraham has to do things here so that the Lord's promise would come true. So Abraham has to do certain things so that the Lord's promise would, would occur. That sounds conditional. Look at Genesis 22, after he is going to offer up Isaac, and the Lord stops him. Verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now look at this wording here. It's kind of unusual. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will multiply you. Verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Do you see a conditional aspect to the covenant? This is getting a little confusing. If you're reading this for the first time, God said, I'm going to make sure it happens no matter what. And now are we hearing that Abraham's obedience is intimately tied to the covenant coming about. This seems like, like two different ways. Let me give you one more quote. This happens with Isaac later, Genesis 26, verse 4. I will multiply your offspring and give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So let me quote Schreiner, and then I'll give it to Greg to help us with this difficult situation. Schreiner says it like this, it is evident from these texts on Abraham's obedience that the covenant can't simply be described as unconditional. The covenants also depend on Abraham's obedience. But how does that fit with the fact that God alone passed between the cut-up animal pieces, thereby rendering the covenant unconditional? Well, Greg, any, any thoughts before we get to some of what Schreiner may say here as an answer? Um, well, this, this touches on, you know, stuff we think about in, in the New Testament as well when we get to, like, election and the importance of faith and everything like that. Like, we know on one hand, you know, God's the one who makes the choice. Like, we're, we're saved ultimately because God chose us to be saved. But as far as our experience of that salvation goes, we still have to trust Him. We still have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And it's like... One is, is, I think, built off the other. Abraham's obedience ultimately flows from God's promise. Mm -hmm. If God said he's going to make sure this covenant is accomplished and fulfilled, it's going to. And how does he bring that about? For, for Abraham, Abraham obeys. Now, as far, again, there's, there's two different perspectives here, and we, we have to be comfortable with a little bit of, of mystery on this point. But God said he's going to do it, and he's going to. 
Um, and that's what I think leads to Abraham's faith and obedience. At the same time, from Abraham's experience and his perspective, it's not like, well, God said it. I don't have to do anything. I mean, we, you know, we hear the gospel and we don't say, well, well God said, you know, he's going to save. Therefore, you know, you don't have to do anything. No, the gospel says believe. The gospel says repent. And so it's a similar kind of thing here. On the basis of God's promise, we act in faith and obedience. That's well said. And, and so this is going to be a hard quote to follow, perhaps. Re- reading this just real quick off a of screen, but just stick with me here. Here's Schreiner again. Quote, no individual, that includes me and you, anybody, n- none of us, will enjoy the blessings of Abraham if he or she transgresses covenant requirements. In that sense, the promise is conditional. Do we have to believe, like you just said? Do we have to exert faith? Yes. And yet, the covenant is also unconditional. It will ultimately and finally be fulfilled in its entirety. How so? God will see to it, by virtue of His grace, that some will keep what the covenant demands. He continues, as John the Baptist says, God can raise up children for Abraham from stones. Remember that quote. God in his sovereignty guarantees that some will believe and obey. There will certainly be children of Abraham, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The covenant is unconditional also, though, for God will grant the grace for those who are his own to meet the covenant conditions. So again, I think that ultimately it is unconditional because God will see to it that it is fulfilled. But does that mean we don't have any, uh, anything to do? No, we, we must exert our faith in Christ by his grace. We must believe and God will see to it that his people uh, believe and obey. Anything else on that point? No, I'm good. Okay, so a word about circumcision here. Uh, he says in chapter 17, for instance, verse 21, I'll establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then verse, uh, verse 23, they describe that further. I, I want to mention this. Even in the Old Testament, the theme of what circumcision is pointing to is developed even by Moses in Deuteronomy, for instance. So just, just look at these verses. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcision takes on a deeper spiritual meaning already in the Pentateuch, which is amazing to me. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So already this is starting to be an analogy for the flesh, the sin nature being cut away, the removal of the sin nature and the the renewing of the heart. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I love this verse. It's an amazing verse. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. What's the effect? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So how do we apply this ancient thing where we're not under that covenant anymore in that same way? How do we apply that is we need the Lord to do surgery on our heart. We need the Lord to take our flesh and to get rid of our sin nature. We need him to overpower that and give us a new heart, a new nature that what? That loves the Lord God. So the only way we will love the Lord is if he does that surgery on our heart to, to over, overwhelm the sin nature and to bring his spirit into our lives. Uh, Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, lest my wrath go forth. And this goes all the way into the New Testament. Greg, a word to hear about Romans uh, 2.28 and 29. Well, let's read it and then let's, let's talk about it. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so even in Deuteronomy, we see, um, or in, in the first five books, we see that circumcision is a way by which God's people are marked off as God's people, and it should ideally symbolize that our whole self is consecrated to God. 
Okay, we're, we're, we, have, we have cut off, cut ourselves off from some things so that we might be devoted to God. That is supposed to picture our whole life. But the problem is we see even in, in the first five books, in the Torah, we see that God's people, we're, like even, even the godliest people were corrupt from the heart. So we, we need something else other than just a physical external cutting off. Um, and so as graphic as circumci- physical circumcision is, it's a picture of what needs to take place in our hearts if we are to truly be God's people. That's why Paul picks up on that from what the Old Testament says, that circumcise your hearts. Because again, God's not impressed by external performance. God wants it to be from the heart. We're out of love for him, out of devotion to him, which is what the promise was in Deuteronomy. And so that's why Paul says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. And that's a radical statement right there. Oh my goodness, that is a radical statement. So he's saying, you can be outwardly Jewish and not be Jewish. I mean, that's literally what he's saying. We go through the rest of Romans 8, 9 and all that, we'll see that. A true Jew is someone who has not been circumcised physically, but one who's been circumcised spiritually. That's why Paul says this is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. You can externally keep what the law says and be circumcised. And that does not mean you're, you're truly set apart to God. The only way you're truly set apart to God is if you've experienced this heart circumcision, which is also called regeneration, the new birth, being born again. It's when when God gives a new principle of life by the Spirit in us, whereby we are, like in our hearts, wow, I I repent, sin is bad. I want to make a break with that, and I want to follow Jesus because I see something in him that is worthy, he is lovely, and I want my life devoted to him. That's what's going on here, and that's what has to happen if anyone's going to be saved. And even back in the Old Testament, we can say, how is it that anyone ultimately believes? They get that heart circumcision. Yeah. No, that's very good. So are we seeing now how many foundational things are in the story of Abraham that are going to come forth later in Scripture and be developed as we go forward here? So in, in your Bible, turn back here to Genesis 18. Genesis chapter 18, the very next chapter after that covenant uh, is, is inaugurated with, with Abraham. Genesis 18. And we don't have time to read a lot here. I want to skip down to verse 20. And this is when the, the word about Sodom and Gomorrah's evil has come before the Lord. Uh, Genesis 18, verse 20. If you remember, three men have shown up. Remember the story? Three men show up at Abraham's tent. And uh, we find out as the story goes, I believe one is the Lord in some sense, pre-incarnate perhaps is what we, what, what we think is probably the correct answer. You have two angels and uh, they meet Abraham. I'm not even sure if Abraham knows who they are when he first meets them. They, he's, he shows hospitality to them. I wonder if it unravels as, as the conversation goes who he's talking to yes. when they start talking about his wife having a son in a year and Abraham's going, who, who am I talking to? And remember Sarah is standing at the, at the tent door and she's listening and she finds out that in a year she's supposed to have a son and she laughs and then uh, the Lord says, uh, did, she, did you just laugh? And she said, no, I, I didn't laugh. He goes, no, you, you, you did laugh. That's one of my favorite little exchanges right there. So, okay, yeah, I, I, did, I did laugh because this promise seems impossible. And what you'll find out here in this story is they are coming to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. So look here, I want to see how Abraham seeks to bless the nations. Verse 20, the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is very great and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. So two of the men were angels, I think, who went down to the city, that's clear. And then the man who remains behind is called Yahweh. 
This makes me think it is a pre-incarnate God here, in, in, on, in, here in, in, before Abraham. And Abraham is talking to the Lord. Verse 23, then, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 uh, righteous who are in it? And you know the story, he keeps going further down. Verse 28, he says, what about 45? Then he goes to 30 in verse 30, and then he goes down to 20, and then finally he says uh, to 10. And at that point, we're told that um, God, will not, God will spare the, the city even for the sake of 10 righteous people. But do the angels find even 10 righteous people living in Sodom? No. They find Lot, who is called a righteous man, even though he was deeply compromised at this moment mm-hmm. in the story. His wife was not truly a believer, it appears, from the way her heart was knit to the city. When destruction comes on the city, uh, we, are, we won't read the whole story. We'll just look at this here. Skip with me to chapter 19, verse 27. So God rains down destruction on the cities, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Uh, Verse 29, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So here, again, it's, it's, it's not a perfect picture yet, but do we see Abraham striving to bring blessing to the nations? That's what his prayer was about. It was about sparing the cities. Now, as the Lord looked, there was no one righteous except Lot, and he got Lot out of the city with his daughters, but then, uh, so they escaped, but that's for the sake of Abraham. But other than that, there, is no, there was no redemption for Sodom at that point, but you still see Abraham seeking to bless the nations. Now, just because we're going to, there's just, I'm skipping things. Let's go straight to Genesis 22. We know this story, and it's a great place to begin moving toward a conclusion. Greg, could you start reading through this chapter, just the first few verses here, and we'll, yep. we'll make comment as we go? Yeah, sure thing. So Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both of them went together. Yeah, so here, Greg, how do we see salvation through substitution, especially with what happens here when the Lord stops him and provides the ram? Well, I mean, you see, you know, Hebrews talks about Abraham's faith. You see, even in um, verse 5, when he talks to uh, the young men who are with them, he says, mm. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So he knows what God has called him to do, but he has faith that he's going to come back with Isaac because right. he believes God's promise that through Isaac, his descendants uh, will, will be named and, and will come. And then again, verse 8, we see Abraham said, 
and this is key, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So Abraham has faith that God is going to provide the offering that God is requiring. Even though right now it looks like Isaac, and as we get into the story, we see Abraham is willing to go all the way to, to killing his son, um, trusting that God is still going to bring Isaac back with him. And I can't help but think verse 12 is alluded to in verses like John 3.16 and Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, or God so loved the word he gave his son. I think there's an allusion likely, Sinclair Ferguson argues that there's an allusion here back to this verse. The angel of the Lord says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So Sinclair Ferguson said, we can basically flip this back around to God and say, now we know that you not fear us, but love us. We, we know that you truly love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son from us. Right? You can flip this backwards to, to John 3.16 and say, how much must God love his people? But you see here, again, a very clear example of the promised son taking wood on his back, up a hill, being sacrificed, and yet with Jesus, the sword, the, 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 uh, the knife not stopping, but God actually carrying through the sacrifice. So again, strong allusions to the, cru the crucifixion here in this chapter. I can also yeah. draw one more thing about Abraham's faith here. Um, because what was it Hebrews say? Hebrews 11. Um, let me see if I can get there quickly. This is, this is so important here. Um, where's that? By faith, this is verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And what is so significant is it's not just that he was going to kill his son and leave him. Isaac was to be a burnt offering. Isaac was going to be ashes at the end of this. And Abraham believed that God could bring Isaac back from even that. And so, and it's also significant you know, the, these little things start to point, start to, to rise up. And this is, this is one, um, where was it? It was on which day that they, he offered Isaac uh, up and then got him back on the third day, on the third day. When did Jesus rise from the dead to conquer death on the third day? And so like you start to see things like that. And you know, where does the new Testament get some of the language and the terminology and the imagery that it uses? It gets it from places like this. And Mount it. Moriah uh, I think it's, is it First Chronicles or Second Chronicles tells us Mount Moriah is where Solomon built the temple. So, yeah. I mean, that's right near where Jesus was crucified, right? So, I mean, yeah. th this happened in the same area uh, geographically in the world, which is amazing. And so when it says, in, you know, it'll be called in this place, the Lord will provide, like there's so much packed into that. It's not just God provided for Abraham. That's where God's going to provide the sacrifices for his people in Israel and later for the whole world in that one place. Okay, we've got one last, that's very good. One last thing to mention here is, is Genesis 23. So if you can look at Genesis 23, it's a long chapter. Sarah dies at the very beginning of the chapter. And verse after verse is what? It's Abraham trying to buy a burial plot for his wife, which is a, basically a field and a cave. Uh, and he's seeking to buy them from the Hittites. And they want to give it to him, but he says, no, I'm, I want to pay full price for this field. Uh, verse 4 I am a sojourner and a foreigner among, me, among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And we're told, uh, verse 20, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And you say, well, what, what's the significance of this? Is this? This is Abraham's first purchase of the promised land. 
This is all Abraham gets. He gets this tiny little burial plot, a, a field and a cave, and that's all he's got. He's got a tiny little glimpse, a foreshadowing of the promised land that's going to be much larger, and then of one day, the new creation. And so again, back to Hebrews Verse uh, 11, chapter 11, verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Verse 9, by faith he went out to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's not a city in this world right now. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So do we see again, is the promised land the end of the story? No, it's a stepping stone to the new creation. It's a stepping stone to the heavenly Jerusalem. The, the land promise is not an end in itself. It is pointing beyond itself to the new creation, the new, the new Jerusalem. So again, using this, uh, this pattern for the kingdom that we've used before, uh, you've got God's people at the end of this story, but it's not many people. You've got this little foreshadowing, Isaac, right? That one son of promise. You've got God's place, but do we have much of it? No, we've just got a little tiny burial plot, a field and a cave for Sarah. Is Abraham under God's rule? Yes, but God's rule will come more fully as the story goes. And is he experiencing blessing? Yes, he is. But these are just the beginnings and foreshadowings of what's going to be developed much, much more strongly as we go forward. So in conclusion here, this last slide, going back to where we started. In Abraham's life, to sum up, we see God's unconditional election of Abraham. We see that we are made righteous by faith, not by works. Number three, salvation comes through substitution. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. Number four, we see circumcision points to our need for a new heart, regeneration. Number five, Abraham's offspring and God's global purpose. God will bless all nations through Abraham's seed. And number six, we even get a foreshadowing of the new creation, the new Jerusalem, because the land promise was never about the land. Abraham was always looking beyond it to the city that has foundations, whose uh, designer and builder is God. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. So all those, I mean, these are massive foundation stones biblically for the rest of Scripture, and they're all laid in place in kind of seed form yeah. by the time Abraham passes away and goes to heaven himself. Any concluding thoughts here, Greg? No, that's good for now, I think. Can you pray for us? Yeah, let's, let's pray. Father, what, what an amazing story you have given us, uh, Lord, and it is our story, and it is our reality, uh, Lord, because through our faith in the Lord Jesus, all that you have promised through Abraham, we become uh, recipients of that. Uh, Lord, what, what an amazing gift you've given. And Lord, help us have a faith like Abraham's that believes you to do the, the impossible uh, from an earthly perspective. Um, but Lord, even more, may we long for that heavenly city. Lord, as Hebrews will later say, here we have no lasting city. We are seeking the city that is to come. And Lord, that's going to be the best place to be because that's where you will be. That's where all your people will be. That is where righteousness will dwell. There will be no sin. There will be no death. Uh, it will only be joy, happiness, uh, contentment, rest, uh, the thrill of knowing you and walking with you forever and ever, increasing every day. Um, Lord, help us have such a faith. And Lord, we know that if we can latch on to that kind of, of outlook, God, that uh, we will be sustained by it through all the dark times and all the difficulties that we face on this earth, uh, Lord, because we know that our time here is but for a moment uh, in comparison to all eternity never ending with you. And so, Lord, strengthen us, equip us, help us with these things. 
We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.